0: Read there. He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near, and when he saw him, he was moved to pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Would you pray with me? Bless, O Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, O Lord, our rock, our only strength, and our redeemer. Amen. When I was a very young clergy in the early 80s, I had an associate position at First Church in Athens. It was during the time when many of the mental health hospitals were emptying patients out in droves and where there was a, a hospital there in Athens and we had wondered what on earth would happen to those fragile persons. Well there was a particular Sunday morning it was hot And in the front door walks a young woman, probably in her early 30s, wet, long hair, and clothed only in, I think, a bathrobe, barefooted. You have never seen ushers trying to find a pastor faster. (laughs) What do we do now? Well, obviously something was not right and so I asked her if she would accompany me to the senior pastor's office. We walked back in to the office and as he saw the situation, he picked up the phone to call the police. Let's just say that the words that came out of her mouth Made the air a bright blue. <laughs> it would take years for me to remember that date and realize that I had missed an opportunity. I was, after all, the associate, I was not preaching that day. And there would have been no skin off my nose had I sat in a pew with that young woman and invited her to worship just as she was. You see, this parable, while familiar. We should not take as understanding. Roy Keller, or excuse me, Heller, who teaches Old Testament and Hebrew at Perkins Theology says it's great advice not to confuse familiarity with understanding because, in this context, it's always a fresh and new to find out where the challenge lies. The parable of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son, found only in the Gospel of Luke, are intended to lend a distinctive flavor and tone to the person of Jesus. Jesus uses this as a moral teaching story. A Samaritan, a moral example. It would have been a huge twist for the people of his time, and they would have been sitting there thinking, Has he lost his mind? Lost his religion? Or worse still, is he making this up as he goes along? It all starts when Jesus is confronted with a lawyer. Someone very familiar with the Old Testament rules and regulations, the Torah and the Scriptures. And he says, what have I got to do? What have I got to do to inherit eternal life? And in true Jesus fashion, he turns it back and says, well, you're a lawyer. What does the law say? He says, love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and the strength, and then he adds that little snippet from Leviticus, and your neighbor as yourself, and Jesus says, yep, that's it, that's all of it. Well, the lawyer just wants to get a little deeper, and so he pokes a stick in Jesus' cage and says, well, who is my neighbor? And, of course, that's when Jesus offers the parable of the good Samaritan. Samaritans who at best should be ignored and shrugged off as unworthy of consideration, and at worst those to be despised and avoided as the dump heap of humanity, Jesus says that's the one who takes the chance to stop Manage the inconvenience, bear the cost, increase his vulnerability. He's the hero here. Can't you just hear that lawyer saying, You've got to be kidding? Is there any wonder the lawyer decides to challenge Jesus or to try and embarrass him? Now, We might like to be irritated by the lawyer, but we've got to consider that these questions are not inappropriate, nor are they outdated. Ancient Jewish scholars understood their responsibilities to their neighbors, and their responsibility came from a transcendent commandment entitled the transcendent, the transcendent, I'll try one more time. <laughs> the transcendent commandment was, you shall be holy. This one commandment governed tons of things. From social order to social justice, to one's behavior, one's community experience, it applied to so many things, and therefore, you could debate it. What does it mean in this case, and what does it mean in this case, and in this case? In fact, Rabbi Akiva, who was born in the first century, had ruled that your life takes precedent over your fellow mans if you find yourself at risk or in danger. Okay. Rabbi Rashbaum comes along later and qualifies the requirement of being holy by saying, love thy neighbor as thyself only if, He or she is really your neighbor. In other words, one who is just as virtuous, meaning not the wicked, as it is written, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. This stuff was up for debate. Thus love only him who is righteous, not the villain, In which case, you have to follow King Solomon's dictate, which was, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, avoid him, and shun that person's company. So in lawyer terms, our guy this morning has some precedent to avoid the Samaritan. Aren't we still trying to figure out who and what we have to tolerate in order to determine who our neighbors are. Be it immigration and children in detention camps, citizenship questions on census questionnaires, politics, race relations, you name it, these are not easy debates, and at no point would I suggest that there are simple solutions. Not when these differences have such stinging real life consequences just to say that the enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans in Jesus' day was not theoretical. It was embodied and just as real as it is today. The difference between them were not easily negotiated, and each today are fully convinced that the other is wrong. So what Jesus did when he deemed the Samaritan good was radical and risky. It stunned his Jewish leaders and stuns us today. Was he not inviting them to consider the possibility that a person might, might just add up to more than the sum of their politics their racial, cultural, or economic identities. It's a radical thought, isn't it? Because this text begins to take that radical thought and show us how to do it. It starts with how Jesus treats the lawyer. He didn't think the lawyer was a bad guy, even though it's implied by the writer. Now, why would I say such a thing? Well, it's because Jesus seemed perfectly willing to be in conversation with this guy. Conversation around how the law was taught was a way of grasping and understanding it. Jesus neither deemed him wrong nor did he dismiss him. The conversation actually invited the lawyer to put aside the history he knew. And the prejudice he nursed, the conversation was leaving room for divine and world altering surprises. Megan Phelps Roper was raised in a family that belonged to the Westboro Baptist Church family. Familiar with Westboro Baptist? She was a blue-eyed, chubby-cheeked five-year-old when she joined her family on the picket line. Surrounded by several dozen family members with her little fist tightly around a sign handle she could not read. But that began her life of dividing good from evil. The protest soon became a daily occurrence in her life and an international phenomenon. And Megan was a fixture on the picket line across this country for years. The end of her picketing career came about 20 years later, and it was triggered by a stranger on Twitter, of all things. In 2009, she decided to take her theology to Twitter, And initially, people would do exactly what you think they would do, be hostile in their expectations. But in the midst of this digital brawl, a strange pattern started to emerge. It went from rage often to civility and an honest desire to figure out how you had come to the place where your thoughts had led you. Genuine interest. It would go from rage to civility, from curiosity to a beginning appreciation of each other. How had the other come to their conclusions? One day, her conversation on Twitter bled into real life. She was in New York City for a protest And a guy she had learned to uh, know through her Twitter account named David showed up and brought her this delicious Jewish confection. In fact, his Twitter handle is delicious. (laughs) She had brought with her some kosher chocolate all the while holding a sign that says God hates Jews. real life real contexts there's no confusion about where their positions were at the time but the line between friend and foe began to blur they started to see each other as human beings it changed the way they spoke to each other it was life Altering, She says this, Once I saw that we were not the ultimate arbitrators of divine truth, but flawed human beings, I couldn't pretend otherwise. I couldn't justify my actions, especially our cruel practice of protesting funerals and celebrating human tragedy this conversation began her transformation. It was Jesus' conversation with the lawyer that began to move him from identifying who a neighbor is to the real issue of the parable, which is that our love, our unconditional love, is a required action from Jesus' perspective. You see, the point of this parable is not who deserves to be cared for, but rather the action required of us, which is to treat everyone we encounter, however frightening, alien, naked, or defenseless, with real compassion. Jesus says, you Do the same. Rather than ask who the neighbor is, Jesus says, be the neighbor. John Calvin wrote that the question is not which person in the story is your neighbor, but which of the three proved to be a neighbor for the man who fell into the hands of robbers. Who the neighbor is becomes irrelevant. That we be the neighbor to another is the action required. Don't we spend an awful lot of time trying to figure out how to remain detached, disengaged, or at least disenfranchised? Let's do a little test this morning. How many of you have gotten on an airplane and decided to signal, as soon as you sat down, by book, phone, or iPad, or whatever, that you are not going to chat. (laughs) This person, if you are lucky, is sitting less than two inches away from you and will, at some point, be in your personal space. And we reserve the right if they ask us to get up and let them to go to the restroom to give them the look. <laughs> we signal our distance in so many ways. Did you see the story this week that Alexa Bornson from Las Vegas had recently sent her son Landon on his first solo flight to Oregon to visit his dad. Since Landon was flying alone and has high-functioning autism, she sent along a note to give his seatmate a little explanation. She said, Landon might be a little nervous and ask you several times, are we there yet? Please just make him feel safe and comfortable. She added that she included $10 in the note so that Landon would give it to his seatmate as a thank you for helping out. Fortunately, Alexa, his mother, later received a sweet note from the man who ended up being Landon's seatmate, explaining that he had A new travel buddy and that they had had a great time on the flight he writes Alexa my name is Ben I was Landon's seat neighbor for his flight to Portland he did ask if we were there several times but he was a great travel buddy we had fun playing a few rounds of rock paper scissors he's a great kid and you are a lucky mom. He goes on to write, while he appreciated the $10, he didn't need it and would be donating it to an autism-focused charity. Let's just face it. If it's hard on a plane... How are we going to act with the kind of extreme compassion the Samaritan offered to the half-dead traveler? What does Jesus do? He moves from conversation to being the neighbor to careful illustration of what that would look like because real compassion is going to move us by the Spirit to extraordinary, unusual responses. Jesus describes the mercy of the Samaritan with a verb that is rarely used in Scripture. In fact, only three times in the Gospel of Luke in reference to the Good Samaritan and the way in which the Samaritan was moved to help. The mercy of the father, of which is is so moved to welcome his prodigal son home without reservation. And then the master who forgives an astronomical debt. It's visceral. It comes from the heart. Our Samaritan takes not only his time and risk, but he binds up the wounds. He nurses him, pays for the room, tells the innkeeper, please look after him and I'll pay you what's left when I come back. He goes out of his way. This is a God response. It's a love response, a godly action neither automatic Or unthinking this is so much more than an act of kindness to a stranger this is a story for people who recognize hear this this is a story for people who recognize that they are on a journey not a journey from womb to tomb but from birth to rebirth, from partial life to abundant life. James Wallace goes on to illustrate that he knows the story of a 12-year-old Palestinian boy who had been shot by Israeli soldiers during a street fight on the West Bank. The boy had been holding a toy gun that looked real. He was taken to an Israeli hospital where he died two days later. His parents were so stricken by the violence of their homeland, so deep and so old that it would still be costing children their lives, that they made the decision to harvest his organs for transplanting to the very community and people that had taken his life. His heart, his kidneys, his lungs saved six people, including a two-month-old. His mother was quoted as saying, my son has died, maybe he can give life to others. In other words, my friends, this is no cliched parable of nice deeds of a buck to a stranger on the street intersection. This is a gut-wrenching, life-giving response of compassion given by those who recognize that our journey is to repair the brokenness of life, to bear the inconvenience and the trouble for the sake of the gospel. This scripture is a spiritual GPS routing us in the only direction that Jesus saw, which is the way of love and compassion for others. This is about eternal life. This is about here and right now. I want to conclude with a statement from Mother Teresa. Our vocation remember, not your job, but your life calling, your vocation, is to belong to Jesus so completely that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What you and I must do is nothing less than putting our love for Christ into practice, being the neighbor. The important thing is not how much we accomplish but how much love we put into our deeds every day. We examine our deeds because that's the measure of our love for God. Be in conversation. Be the neighbor. Let your unconditional love of your neighbor look for all of the world like Jesus just showed up for the transformation of the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.